join me in John chapter 7, John the 7th chapter. You know, isn't it interesting that Easter, for the first time that I can remember, falls on April Fool's Day. Of all the days in the world to do uh, Easter, but that's how the spring equinox has set it. Uh, It does remind me of this company that was near Los Angeles International Airport that decided on April 1st it would pull a trick on those flying into LAX. And that is when uh, passengers were flying in on their planes on April 1st to LAX, they put up this large banner that said, Welcome to Chicago. I was flying back from Venezuela a number of years ago, and we were getting a connecting flight from um, uh, Maracaibo, Venezuela to Miami into Atlanta. And when we landed in Miami, the pilot said, Welcome to the People's Republic of China. You know, I've discovered about pilots, they have a very wicked and perverse sense of humor. That's certainly not where we wanted to go. It's very, very important to understand the place where you are, and it's important to understand the place of John chapter 7 as we look at it this uh, morning. Jesus is in Jerusalem with the Passover, with all the elaborate celebrations that are taking place, and one of them happened to be the water-pouring ceremony. And in that ceremony, they would act it out for seven days, and they would take a golden pitcher of water and dip it in the Pool of Siloam, which is mentioned back in chapter 5, and they would take it to the altar, and on the west side of the altar, they would pour it, and then a choir would begin to sing Psalms 113 through 118. And they would do this to remember how God provided Israel with water when they were in the wilderness. Uh, traveling from Egypt up to the promised land in the 40 years of wandering, how he did that and how he was kind and very gracious to do so. They were also thanking God for the rain that he had provided in that arid climate and had provided for them. So the water pouring ceremony is the background of this passage, and that's where this passage happens to fall in the text. And here in John 7, Jesus uses the water pouring ceremony to point out to his people that he promises that after his resurrection, he would satisfy them with the Holy Spirit. Beginning in John chapter 7, verse number 37, it says, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Therefore many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Well, truly this is the prophet. Others said, Well, this is the Christ. But some of them said, Will will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the seed of David? and from the town of Bethlehem where David was. So there was division among the people because of him. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Verse number 39 is a pivotal verse in this, uh, in this text, in this story. It says that when Jesus talked about satisfying people with rivers of water, he was speaking of the Holy Spirit, But the Holy Spirit was not yet given in that particular time in God's history, in the history of God's people, because Jesus was not yet glorified. 
The word glorified is a technical term that John uses in his gospel to refer to those last events, the last 50 days or so of Jesus' life, where Jesus was glorified in the crucifixion. And let me make sure you understand, when Jesus died on the cross, he was not a victim, he was a victor. He went to the cross because he wanted to. And there he accomplished redemption, paid the price, and purchased all the graces and blessings that God's people would ever need and receive by faith. The cross was a victory. It was a glory to Jesus. And then three days later, he was raised from the dead. That obviously was a glory to Jesus. And then uh, he taught them for 40 days after his resurrection, and he ascended into heaven, and heaven received him. The only ones that get into heaven are those that have lived a perfect life like Jesus or those that have borrowed by faith from his perfection and righteousness. Well, there's only one in the first category and the rest of us have got to fit into the second. And that is by faith we receive the gift of his righteousness. Well, Jesus was received up into heaven not by borrowing someone else's perfection or righteousness, but by owning his own. He did everything God wanted him to do and never failed. And so heaven received him. He would not have gone into heaven otherwise. And then, 10 days later, the Holy Spirit was sent, and that's what, that began the era of being satisfied in the Holy Spirit. And because... Uh, the Holy Spirit was sent in Acts chapter 2, we can know for certain that Jesus was not only received warmly into heaven, but he was seated at the right hand of the Father and coronated. The crowning of Christ as King and Lord is proven by the presence and the coming of the Holy Spirit. So, once Jesus was glorified in that way, the Holy Spirit came. And beloved, I've got good news for you today. Not only do we stand in the era of the death and resurrection of Christ, we stand in the era whereby the Holy Spirit, Jesus, satisfies all of those who come to Him and trust Him. It is possible, it is possible, it is possible today to be satisfied by the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus is risen from the dead. So because Jesus rose and was glorified, the Holy Spirit can now satisfy all of Christ's people. Now the question I want to ask and answer this morning is, what kind of satisfaction does Jesus promise from the Holy Spirit? Well, there are several ways to describe it, and one is supernatural. Jesus promises a supernatural satisfaction. Now in this day, it can be a rather intimidating thing to admit that you believe in the supernatural, that you believe in miracles. Now probably uh, you go to different places, either in your workplace, maybe even sometimes in your family. And dear God, may it never happen in this church where someone might intimidate you because you believe in the supernatural and the miraculous. But this is what this is signifying here. In the text, the water pouring ceremony celebrated Exodus chapter 17 verses 1 through 7 where Moses struck a rock and water came from the rock. And he, Paul would later say in 1 Corinthians 10, 4 that that rock in the wilderness from which they got water was a preview of Christ. Jesus was the rock. Paul would say later in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. Well, have you ever heard of such a thing? Water from a rock? But that's what God does, and that's what God did for His people. You've got to understand, if you're going to embrace and follow Jesus Christ, 
This God, he declares and proclaims, and even of himself, is a miracle-working God, and there is none other than a miracle-working God. He begins the Bible with a miracle. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The high point of the Bible, the Gospels, happens to be filled with miracles, at least three dozen different miracles that Jesus performed. And John will say later in chapter uh, 20, that Jesus performed so many miracles you couldn't contain them in all the books of the world. Uh, so the high point, Jesus Christ, the focal point, worked miracles. And then the Bible ends with a flurry of miracles from chapter 19 to 21, including the second coming of Christ and the establishment and the return of a kingdom that looks just like the Garden of Eden, only better. That is the kind of God with whom we have to do. And there is no other Christian faith besides the one that affirms the God of miracles. Now, God pulled off all sorts of miracles. And there are about three eras throughout the Bible where there are miracles that encompass, not including Revelation, about 300 years of the 1,500 years of the history of the Bible. And some of those happen to be not only the miracle of creation, but, but the miracle uh, of, of parting the Red Sea. There is that. There is a, a broke preacher in 2 Kings chapter 6 who's using someone else's axe, axe and the head falls off. That happens to a lot of sermons, by the way. And, and um, Elijah comes along and throws a stick into the water and it comes up and surfaces. Uh, so this fellow doesn't have any more debt and doesn't have to pay off. He's a broke preacher and God has to come through to meet his needs. That happens so often to the widows of the prophets in the scripture. And then Jesus is the one that uh, heals the lame and he chases off demons and he does the miracles that we find in the scripture. Listen to me. If Jesus Christ can pull off these miracles, it's a very small thing to cleanse your heart and to give you a peaceful conscience. Jesus Christ can do that. He can eliminate your guilt. He can chase away the bothered conscience. He can put at rest the heart. He is a miracle-working God. And this morning, He expects and He intends to come through for you if you'll come to Him and trust Him. So this is a supernatural satisfaction. But that's not all. It's, it's also a sympathetic salvation. Reminds me of Fred and Mabel. They both were born on April 1st of the same year. And so they had the same birthday. April the 1st when they turned 60. And uh, on his birthday, a fairy shows up to Fred and says, Ask for anything that you want and you shall have it. He said, I wish I had a wife 30 years younger. And poof, he was immediately 90 years old. <laughs> Serves him right, doesn't it? <laughs> that joker. You know, you've had wishes and dreams and desires, and they have been equally disappointing to you, haven't they? Your best efforts and your best labors, your best plans have come to nothing but disappointment. In fact, many of the things that you've done beat you down on a daily basis, in the morning, in the evening. You've got constant mental accusation in your mind. Your conscience is agitated. Your, your memory is like a terrorist. Your, your spirit is restless and you doubt that God could ever satisfy you or that he would even be interested in doing so. I've got good news for you as we look into the Word of God. Look with me in verse number 37. Look what it says. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone thirsts. This is the Passover. Tens of thousands of Jews have gathered there. The temple precincts are packed with them all. Some of them are from Rome, the licentious and lascivious Rome. 
Some of them are from the doubting and unbelieving eastern part of the Roman Empire. Some of them are from the staunch and the satisfied Jerusalem. Tens of thousands of Jews from all over the world. And Jesus looks at them all, stands in their midst, and says to the tens of thousands gathered there, If anyone thirsts, listen, if you are thirsty this morning, you're a perfect candidate for this promise. If anyone thirsts, anyone at all, Jesus sympathizes with those who are thirsty. No matter what you've done, no matter how your conscience may howl at you, no matter how your spirit may bark at you, no matter how much demonic, mental, constant mental accusation may come across and course through your mind, Jesus Christ loves and sympathizes with all of those who thirst. You know something, I've known him for many years now, and I want to tell you, I've given him countless reasons to stop loving me, but never once has he changed his mind. Not at all. His love is constant. It's unfailing. It permeates. It pulsates. It thrives. It is eternal. It is as strong today as it ever has been. It is as strong on my worst day as it was my best day because it is not based upon my behavior. It's based upon him, and he never changes. He gives a sympathetic satisfaction so God has prepared the spirit satisfaction for you and when Jesus died on the cross he purchased this gift of the Holy Spirit and satisfaction he purchased that for you and that can be yours today only you can exclude yourself he has no interest in doing so only you can exclude yourself from it but not all have satisfaction and that leads us to the third description of the satisfaction Jesus promises specific satisfaction. Oh, people look for satisfaction and contentment in many, many places. For some men, they never earn enough. For some women, they never feel like they're beautiful enough. For some, their clothes are never fashionable enough. For some, their cars are never nice enough. For some, their gadgets are never modern enough. For some, their homes are never furnished or updated enough. For some, their relationships have never been romantic enough. Jesus gets specific about this. Look in verse 37 again. On the last day, that great day of the feast, again, ten thousands of Jews, many of them crammed into the temple precincts where Jesus is watching the water-pouring ceremony. Look what, look what Jesus did. Jesus stood, implying they're all sitting, watching the ceremony. Jesus stood and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Hey, this is what this is like. Here Jesus stands, so this is emphatic. This is urgent. This is important. This should occupy your heart and soul on this day. Here's what Jesus does. Imagine being at a Georgia football game, and the stadium is jam-packed with more than 90,000 fans. Nick Chubb breaks loose from the 25-yard line, hoping for a 75-yard touchdown run. He gets to the 50-yard line, and Jesus appears in the end zone and says, Stop! That touchdown he's about to score is merely a preview of me. I'm the biggest score in life, in eternity. Stop! All 90,000. Silence! 
I am the primary score. I'm the touchdown of the soul. I am the touchdown of eternity. He gathers everyone's attention and brings it to himself. That's what he's doing here in this text in the temple precincts. He's saying, that religious ceremony there merely points to me. It's the shadow, it's not the reality. I am the reality. And so here Jesus stood, and then he says, you come to me. So this is not automatic. Just because your parents may be Christian, and your family may be, does not mean that you are and that you have the satisfaction of the Holy Spirit. You've got to purposefully, intentionally come to him. This has to be a deliberate thing on your part, a conscious thing where you turn and receive Jesus Christ as Savior. And sometimes people that grow up in churches or people with an exaggerated sense of self-righteousness or virtue, they don't get this. The truth is, we thirst whether we realize it or not, and we've got to personally make a decision to come to Christ. And so he says, come. He stood and he said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Not merely to religious ritual, not merely to religious ceremonies, not merely to a church, but come to the person of Jesus Christ. There is a difference, a world of difference between religious practice and Jesus Christ. Religious practices can be fine if they do not obscure Jesus Christ. They are to point to Him and they are to drive us to Him. And some people in churches, all they've ever had is a religious practice. They've never met the Son of God and so they're the same person after the religious ceremony that they were before they ever performed it. He said, if you're thirsty, come to me and then drink and believe in me. Why did he say that? Because trusting Jesus Christ is a lot like drinking something. When you drink something and ingest something like you have this morning, whether it be coffee or juice or water, you trust that it's clean and pure. So much so, you're willing to go through the drinking process to ingest it and integrate it into your entire being. And you have no qualms with it. When it comes to Jesus Christ, you drink of Him in the same way. You have no qualms. You have no hesitation. You, you do not resist. You do not hesitate. You trust Him and you drink of Him. And if you're thirsty, you can. This is how specific that He gets. And so the way to the Holy Spirit's satisfaction is to intentionally trust Christ alone and shun all the other competitors. There are no substitutes for Jesus. H.A. Ironside said, Jesus Christ is a substitute for everything, but nothing is a substitute for Christ. In a moment, when I finish my message, we'll sing a song, and you can turn to Jesus Christ in that time. Our staff will be here. We'll invite you to seek their help and their counsel in coming to Christ, and we'll encourage you to do that because there's no other way. So Jesus promises that specific satisfaction, but then... Jesus also promises the Spirit's surplus satisfaction. Oh, there's a surplus of it. Reminds me in 2015 of the Clippers, Los Angeles Clippers forward, Josh Smith. He re-signed or signed with the Clippers and they cut his pay. And he said after the signing, it's going to be tough for my family and me. I've taken this pay cut, but somehow we'll make it on $6.9 million a year. Vladimir Putanin and Nat, uh, Natalia Putanania uh, have divorced in Russia. He's one of the most wealthy men in the world. She has settled the divorce for $7 billion. If she lives 40 more years, that's $3.3 million every week. I could find a way to spend that, couldn't you? 
Some of you ladies don't get any idea. Your man doesn't have that much money. And then Mary Horomaski in Florida received one day a $274 billion electric bill. That's kind of like yours and mine, isn't it? $274 electric bill. Well, the electric company put the decimal in the wrong place. It was $274, but just imagine if she owned that. Wouldn't it be great to pay that bill and not worry about your bank balance? Nearly everyone I know has got to worry about their bank balance. Do you know Jesus Christ never worries about his balance? Jesus never worries about his accounts because verse 38, He who believes in me, as the scripture has said in many places, Isaiah 2, Isaiah 55, Zechariah 14, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, will flow rivers of living water. Just a few chapters ago, back in John chapter 4, verse 14, Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman, and he's promising if she'll repent and trust him, that springs or fountains of living water will flow in her. Springs and fountains. Well, Jesus Christ is up the game here by John 7, just three chapters later. In John 4, from John 4 to John 7, He's gone from fountains to rivers. And that's what he promises. In other words, there is an abundant surplus for you. Jesus did not intend or arrange things to leave you out and to leave you thirsty. When you come to him, there can be rivers and a surplus that is enough. Now look at verse number 38. Here's why. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, will flow rivers of living water. Well, who's the his here? Oftentimes we've assumed that if Christ comes into our life and the Holy Spirit with him, out of our hearts will flow rivers of water. Oh no, that's not what it says. The antecedent here is not the one who believes. The antecedent here is Jesus. So let me read it again, verse 38. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of Christ's heart will flow rivers of living water. You never have to be the source of your own satisfaction. In fact, you can't be. Christ is the eternal source, and beloved, he has enough to satisfy the soul from now until eternity. So out of Christ's heart flows rivers of water. So the Spirit, by Christ, blesses in abundant measure. He does not give the miserly, but infinity. He doesn't give the deficient, but the abundant. He doesn't give the economic, but the extravagant. Jesus goes above and beyond everyone's needs. It is a surplus. So the issue today is not whether he will keep his promise. The issue today is, will I trust him? And that same issue presented itself to those that were assembled there. Look at the responses. There is first the religious response in verse 40. Therefore, many from the crowd, so this is rather popular movement and sentiment with that crowd. Many from the crowd, when they heard this, said, surely this is the prophet. That's a criticism by understatement. This is someone like Isaiah. This is someone like Jeremiah. But the problem is it's an insult by understatement because Jesus Christ was not merely come from God to teach. He was God come to teach. He wasn't merely a prophet. He's the son of God in human flesh. And so they got religious and were impressive enough to influence a large number of people in that crowd. And all they did is that they embraced religion, but they didn't embrace Jesus Christ. Please don't make that mistake today in your response. 
Go all the way to Jesus Christ. But then there's another response. I call it the reckless response in verse 41. Others said this is the Christ, but some of them said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David, from the town of Bethlehem where David was? Well, yes, it did in Micah 5 too. But they made a reckless mistake in that they did not look carefully enough at Jesus and they made the mistake of believing that Jesus was born in Galilee when he was actually born in Bethlehem. They were reckless with how they dealt with the information. Please don't make that mistake today. Please do not walk in error as they did. And then look at the rigid response in verse 44. Some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. There are some that wanted to accost him and arrest him and crucify him at that moment. They were hostile and they were angry. And I want to say to you, you may find yourself in that same position. In fact, the first point of this message may have just turned you off about God being a miracle-working God. May I say to you, God still loves you. And God is still drawing you. And you'll probably be upset about this for a couple of days and you'll think about it and you'll swim in it. That's the Holy Spirit working with you. And let me assure you, I would much rather you be upset with a message like this than to be indifferent and apathetic. Because what's happening is that the Holy Spirit is acting like sandpaper and He's trying to rub down the rough edges of your unbelief and your doubt. And I want to assure you, God still loves you. And the kind of anger that we find here in verse 44 is similar to someone walking along the Damascus Road into Syria by the name of Paul, who became one of the most prolific authors in the New Testament. That's what God can do with you if you'll come to Christ. And God invites you and God wants you to. But then there's the right response in verse 41. This is the Christ. Christ means the anointed king. The king that God anoints. And that's what we need to declare about Jesus Christ. Jesus is my king. So how do I make this right response this morning? How do I respond rightly to him? The primary thing is to change your mind. I had to change my mind. I remember before I came to know Christ, I thought everything was good with God. And I was too ignorant to know it wasn't. And I just behaved and thought and spoke and felt in ways where I didn't sense any accountability to God. But then one day I heard a message much like this and it weighed on me for a couple of months. And I all of a sudden began to understand things were not right with God, but God was trying to make them right because Jesus bled and rose again. So I got on my knees beside my bed, and I completed that change of mind. And I cried out to God, and I said, God, I have broken your law. God, forgive me. I am sorry. Oh, God, I, I trust that Jesus died and rose again. Come into my heart and my life. God, I give my life to you. I'll do whatever you want me to do. And that's what the Bible says repentance is. That's the most important issue with you today, is to repent and come to Jesus Christ. So you change your mind. You repent. You, you change your mind about your ruin before God. You've got to admit things are not right with God. I've sinned against God. My heart has. My words have. The, the aspirations of my life. My whole life has been a sin against God. Things are not right. And only Jesus is the remedy. But thank God there's a remedy. And I trust that remedy. I really believe in it. I believe this can be made Right, and then you respond in the appropriate manner. Acts 2.22 says, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then the Bible says, 
uh, if you're ashamed of me and my words, of you shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory. And so we, we have no shame for him. We're going to sing a song in just a moment, and when we do, I want to encourage you to come. Our staff will be here. They'd be glad to receive you and talk with you about giving your life to Jesus Christ and beginning a life and eternity of satisfaction in the Holy Spirit. And if you'll change your mind about ruin, about remedy, about your response, God will receive you and begin a journey of satisfying you in Jesus Christ. Now, some of you have already done that, but you need to come and follow him in baptism. Others of you have done that, but you need to become part of Beach Haven, and we invite you to come. God may be doing something else in your life today, and you want someone to pray with you, and we would be happy to do that. Let's stand together real quickly, and let's pray, and we'll respond.